Our reading this evening is from Matthew chapter 25, and it's verses 31 to 46. It'll be on the screens behind me. Um, I'll be reading from the New International Version. You can follow along on the screens or in the Bibles in the pew. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. My name is Drew. It's very good to be with you this evening. Uh, I'm one of the staff team here at Providencia. And for this whole month of June, we've been going through a series about being rooted in mission centrality been asking the question, what is it we are about? What is at the heart of everything that we do? What are some things that tie this community together in its purpose, in its passion? Two weeks ago, we had a reminder that from the beginning, God's plan to restore creation and to renew all of humanity has included just that, all people. Last week, Keith spoke about our call to be a community of priests, those who stand in the gap and advocate for others, those who are responsible for building a house ready to work on behalf of the least of these. So the words from Keith's sermon last week. And that leads us to our passage for today. It's a passage that is all at once simple and confusing. It's paradoxical and straightforward. It simultaneously calls us to do better and reminds us that we've done worse. 
It's a passage that's probably familiar to many of you. The language and the phrasing has even seeped into common usage outside of the church. President Obama used the phrase, the least of these, on a few occasions. His faith outreach staff even wrote a memo for the administration in 2012, outlining some of the moral foundations of Obama's economic policies. And the memo was entitled, Economic Fairness and the Least of These. But for all the familiarity we have with this passage, its interpretation is slippery. The meaning seems sure in one verse, and then the very next verse makes it unsure. I confess that even this week, as I was rereading this passage over and over and wrestling with it, and as I read various comments on the passage and listened to how others had wrestled with its meaning, I'm still standing before you tonight uneasy. This is a a sermon in two halves. It's a text in two halves. You'll notice from our reading that the language is almost exactly mirrored, those who have done and those who have not done for the least of these. And so this is a sermon in two halves. And in some ways, this follows the two halves of Drew. And so if in the first half of the sermon I lose you or you can't follow it or I'm not very clear, bear with me. Maybe the second half will get you. I want to start by walking us through some of the important questions about this passage. And I'm willing to admit that at the end of this sermon, we might have more questions than answers. And I'm okay with that. Hopefully, you could be okay with that too. There are a few points of context I think can help us to get our heads around Jesus' teaching here. So we'll start there. But then I want to finish by looking at the two halves of this teaching The idea that in this teaching we see celebration and lament. And hopefully, I want to help us see a way toward repenting of our worst and striving for God's best. As is always the case, the first question of interpretation is a question of genre. What kind of text is this? When we encounter any form of literature, we read it differently depending on what kind of literature it is. If it's a poem, we read it one way, more figuratively and imaginatively. If it's a news report, we read it another way, perhaps more factually or propositionally. The same is true of biblical literature. We read a psalm differently than we read a gospel. And even within a gospel, which is what we have here, essentially a story, a narrative, about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Even in a gospel, there are subgenres, miracle stories, parables, prayers, speeches. What we have here in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, is the end of an eschatological teaching, a teaching about last things. And even more specifically, this is a teaching about final judgment. But it's a teaching that is cast in the framework of a parable. The scene here follows in a long tradition of eschatological imagery. With the son of man sitting on a glorious throne. We see this elsewhere in Daniel and in other Jewish literature in the time period. But in verses 32 and 33, the judgment is framed metaphorically. Or like a parable. With this language of separating sheep 
from goats. The two passages prior to this one in chapter 25 are also parables. And so this passage is a natural continuation of this teaching style. But this last passage about final judgment and the separating of sheep and goats does not follow the normal pattern of a parable. In fact, we could lose all of the imagery about sheep and goats in verses 32 and 33, and this teaching still makes sense. So what can we take away from the fact that this passage is a final judgment teaching that includes elements of a parable? First, we should see this teaching as the conclusion of Jesus' teaching that has spanned all of chapters 24 and 25, all of which is about last things, about eschatology. And therefore, we should see that the main point of this passage is in line with the main points of the previous passages. The disciples are to be wise in the parable of the wedding attendants. The disciples are to be faithful in the parable of the talents. And the disciples are meant to be merciful and compassionate to the least of these in this parable of the sheep and the goats. Second, the fact that this teaching is cast in the framework of a parable ought to make us resist trying to drag a systematic doctrine out of it. As one New Testament scholar puts it, to ask of any parable a full and unified theology is to demand too much. Parables illumine aspects of the truth. They do not give all that one might want or expect. Again, we might be left with more questions than answers. But this leads naturally to the second question about this text as a whole. Does this teaching tell us something about salvation and condemnation? About who gets into heaven and who gets thrown in hell? About who's in and who's out? Well, yes and no. Again, we should resist the temptation to try to extract a comprehensive doctrine of salvation from this parable. Yes, the passage ends with some who inherit eternal life and some who go to eternal punishment. But if we read the passage closely, we are confronted with the surprise of both the righteous and the unrighteous, that they find themselves on their respective sides of the throne of the king. There's an epistemological problem for those who are facing final judgment. In other words, no one in this passage knew that they would be counted either righteous or unrighteous. In fact, the righteous did not know that they were doing right by the king when they ministered to those who were in need. And the unrighteous didn't know that they were neglecting or rejecting the king by neglecting or rejecting those who were in need. So while there is a clear distinction here between those who did right and those who did not, there is no indication that they were certain of their reward prior to this final judgment scene. Instead, the impetus of this passage seems to be in motivating the disciples towards service for the least of these. The impetus of this passage seems to be motivating the disciples towards service for the least of these. 
Richard Hayes, who is the former dean of the Duke Divinity School, comments about this text. The New Testament writers are not concerned merely with how individuals might seek eternal life. That's a concern of ours sometimes. It's not always the primary concern of the New Testament writers. They are concerned with how the church as a whole might embody the kingdom of God. The final question, perhaps the most central question about this text, is who exactly is referred to in this phrase, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine? There are three options taken by scholars and theologians, ranging from the most narrow definition of the phrase to the most wide-ranging. The first is this, that the phrase refers only and exclusively to Christian missionaries, Christian evangelists, those who are traveling and preaching the gospel. This is the most narrow referent, and the argument rests on an emphasis of that part of the phrase, brothers and sisters, and inferring that the six needs that the needy find themselves in hunger, thirst, nakedness, unwelcome, sickness, and imprisonment. These are all needs that are commonly experienced, that were commonly experienced by the first disciples. We see all of these needs attested in the Apostle Paul's life in the book of Acts, for example. That's one option. The second option is that the phrase, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, refers to Christians in general, This argument likewise places a heavy emphasis on that brothers and sisters part of the phrase, but also admits that all Christians are meant to be proclaiming the gospel and traveling around, and Matthew's audience would have known that, and so there's no reason to narrow this to simply evangelists or missionaries, but that instead it applies to all Christians. This phrase, brothers and sisters, happens a couple other places in Matthew's gospel to refer to the disciples or to followers of Jesus. And we see it quite often in Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament. But the third and most broad option is to assume that the phrase, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, refers to anyone who might find themselves in need in any of these six ways. And that any of these six needs are just representative of a larger need that we find ourselves in. Now, there isn't time, nor is this the place, for me to dive into all of the arguments for these interpretations. You'll probably be relieved that we're not going to do that. But I'll say a couple of reasons why I think that the third and most wide-ranging option is the one that we should take. First of all, in grammatical terms, the phrase, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, has an antecedent right here in the passage. The least of these refers clearly to those who have the six needs listed immediately in verses 35 to 39. The part of the phrase, brothers and sisters, is added in verse 40. And so I think the question to ask is, why would Jesus add the phrase here in verse 40? Why would Jesus add brothers and sisters to something that is already referred to? And the reason I think he does this 
is because it has to do with the effect of the passage as a whole. The whole parable turns on Jesus' solidarity with the least. This is the rhetorical purpose of the king first saying to the blessed, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Whatever is done for or not done for the least is done for Jesus. Jesus is to be found present among and in solidarity with the least of these. Because this solidarity is so central to the passage, I think Jesus adds this phrase, brothers and sisters, to the phrase, the least of these, to reinforce the idea of solidarity. Jesus is identifying himself so strongly with those who are in need, so strongly with those who have suffered, that he calls them family. Finally, this understanding of the phrase fits squarely within an overarching biblical emphasis on God's sensitivity to suffering. God's sensitivity to suffering. In Genesis, God hears the cries of Abel when he is murdered by his brother, of Hagar when she is thrown out into the desert, of Ishmael as he weeps waiting to die. In Exodus, God knows the pain and suffering of Israel under the oppression of the Egyptians. In the Psalms and the prophets, there is a consistent embrace of pain, to use the words of Walter Brueggemann. In Isaiah, the chosen servant of God is one who suffers, who takes on the sins of the world, who bears in his own body the affliction of evil, who is wounded and crushed and rejected and disdained. And this God, who in the whole story of Scripture stands by faithfully, while humanity does its worst, this God also goes to the cross and once for all takes all pain and suffering and even death itself on himself so that all people and all creation might be liberated from its bondage to sin and death. This, consensit this consistent sensitivity and identification with suffering leads me to conclude that there's no need to narrow the reference in this phrase, the least of these. So here we come face to face with the two halves of this text. All at once, I realize for myself reading this text that when I have served others, in their need, I am serving Jesus himself. And yet I also realize how many times I have neglected those in need. There's a need for celebration at the promise of life. And there is a need for lament at the prospect of death. There is need to strive towards serving others and need to repent of when we have failed to do so. If we understand in this passage Jesus' consistent and continued solidarity with the oppressed and the marginalized, with the downtrodden and the powerless, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned, if we understand with Puerto Rican theologian Orlando Costas that Jesus in his solidarity is present in those who are hurting, 
present in a black South African, a Latin American peasant, a Cambodian refugee, a homeless Palestinian, a persecuted Russian Jew, an orphan and homeless child, a humiliated woman. He is all of these because he is truly human and truly God, the one for others. He is the God of the oppressed, to use the language of James Cone. This is one of the many mysteries of the incarnation, the fact that Jesus takes on flesh, takes on human form, means that Jesus takes on pain and suffering, that he identifies with us in our weakness and our frailty. This is the self-emptying Jesus. And so we need desperately to listen to the voices of those who are in pain and suffering, who are weak under the burden of oppression. Imagine this first phrase from the lips of a child, nine years old, living in the Appalachian Mountains of Kentucky or West Virginia where two in three children don't have enough food. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. Imagine from the lips of a mother in Somalia holding her newborn and struggling to nurse her baby to hydration because of a lack of clean water. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. Imagine from the lips of a teenager from war-torn Honduras who traveled thousands of miles without her parents to seek refuge in the U.S. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Imagine from the lips of a 30-year-old black man who finds himself jailed alongside 30% of his brothers, who over a 10-year sentence has also contracted hepatitis. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. I don't mean to make us all feel bad though we ought to be saddened. I don't think this passage was intended to compel the followers of Jesus to feed every single hungry person or visit every single person in prison or else face eternal punishment. That's not the point. But sometimes we need to be confronted with the magnitude of suffering to be spurred on to action. Sometimes we need to be confronted with the depth of pain to truly lament. This is what we did one of the last weeks of our group Pass the Pulpit this past semester. Pass the Pulpit's a time where we, a group of us, intentionally listen to preaching voices that have historically or traditionally been marginalized. We try to humbly learn from them. We listen to women preachers and preachers of color and preachers from different church traditions and preachers from around the world. We listen to one sermon by Sung Chan Ra on the need to lament white Americas and white American churches' complicity in race-based oppression of black people, of indigenous nations, of all people of color. 
And Dr. Ross says that we too often approach the subject of racial injustice as if it were a patient in the hospital with a treatable illness and a hopeful prognosis. Instead, sometimes, perhaps more often than not, we should treat the subject like a funeral service to grieve and lament the death that has already occurred. The night that we listened to that sermon from Sung Chan Ra, we took some time to sit in silence and in prayer and to do just that, to grieve and to lament. And I'd like to take a moment tonight to do that here. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and to listen as I read a couple of the prayers that we prayed on that night. Our God, our God, why did you forsake them? Why did you let us forsake them? The vestiges of death are all around us. They are in the silence of the moments when we don't know what to say or what to do. They are in the bed where Trayvon Martin no longer lays. They are in the passenger seat where Philando Castile no longer rides. They are in the house where Eric Gardner no longer lives. Our histories, our churches, our nation, the landscape is littered with black and brown bodies. The vestiges of death are all around us. When we remember the body of your son who hung on a tree, we recognize that surely they were bruised because of our transgressions. They were afflicted because of our sins. They were wounded because of our devotion to power and greed and privilege. God, remind us of Emmett Till, another son who hung on a tree. We ask that you would give us the courage that you gave Emmett's mother, who demanded that the disfigured and unrecognizable body of her son be put on full display in an open casket. Help us not look away. In Jesus' name, help us not look away.